This afternoon we will study Lord's Day 14 as uh, in our question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism on page 528 in the Book of Praise dealing with uh, questions 35 and 36, Lord's Day 14. Question 35 then. What do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? And the answer, the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also the true seed of David, and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. This afternoon's sermon was written by the late Reverend Clarence Stem. He titled it, Christ's Incarnation to Work Salvation. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have now looked at the names and titles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last time we touched upon his unique position as Son of God and Lord of all. All these things revealed him specifically in his glorious person. Now, in Lord's Days 14 to 19, we may examine our confession concerning the work of our Lord. For is it not so that in his work he shows that he is fully worthy of the names and titles which have been given to his person? We will indeed see that in his work, in his earthly and heavenly ministry, he shows himself truly to be Jesus, the Savior, the Christ of God, the only Lord. The purpose of the catechism preaching in the coming weeks will then be to show you anew what tremendous wealth and riches we have in that one person, Jesus Christ, and especially what consolation there is in his perfect work of salvation. The Apostles' Creed and our catechism which explains the Apostles' Creed, follow the work of our Lord from beginning to end in a very orderly, even chronological manner. Here in Lord's Day 14, we may therefore confess how Christ entered into his earthly ministry, how he through incarnation, his coming into the flesh, became our perfect mediator and redeemer. I summarize it as follows. Christ's incarnation to work our salvation. We will note two aspects. First, Christ accepting his work, and second, Christ commencing his work. First, we are all conceived and born. This is the way of all flesh, of all people, without exception. The point, however, is that we do not have anything to say about it. We cannot ourselves decide about this conception and birth. Basically, it is not even our parents' decision, 
for they may decide to have or not to have children, but the gift of life by way of conception and birth belongs to God. We do not have anything to say about our conception or birth, and therefore some people, think of Job, come to curse the day of their birth. When they come into great difficulties, some people say, I didn't ask to be born. And, and more and more, is it not a sign of the times? People who can no longer cope with life commit suicide. It seems that even young people increasingly go this route. It is extremely sad and distressing that those who have no say over their birth think that they do have a say over their death. I mention this to show you a sharp contrast between Christ and us. The catechism, the catechism says that our Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. Do you read that well? It says, he took it upon himself. He does this himself, consciously and voluntarily. He takes it, accepts it. He lets himself be born in the manner and at the moment which he chooses. We have no say in our birth, but he has all the say in his. I may say that this is a central notion in this Lord's Day. The original German and the corresponding Dutch text has the word accepted, angenomen. He accepted true human nature. He came voluntarily with premeditation and took flesh and blood as his own nature. It was not forced upon him, but he took it freely. And it was, it was not just a matter of form or appearances, for the catechism stresses that he took upon himself the true human nature, the real thing, that he was so like unto his brethren in all things. He accepted true human nature. He accepted his life on earth. You see, when we are born and when we grow up, we do not know what life will offer us or what the future will be. Sure, we have our expectations and we make certain plans. We can face the world with a certain optimism and courage. Especially for young people, the future lies open. They can accept life and its many challenges in faith. But before he accepted flesh and blood, Christ already knew what his life on earth would bring to him. Already before he came, he knew about the sins of man. He knew about the righteous demands of the Father. And on earth, he learned these truths from the scriptures. There he clearly read about all that awaited him, the hate of the people, the full wrath of God, the curse of the cross, the abuse, the animosity, the loneliness. He knew all about it ahead of time. Had he not caused the prophets to speak of these things to his people? But when the fullness of time came, he did not hesitate for one moment, but said, Lo, I now appear. To do thy will, O God, is my desire. Psalm 40, verse 3, book of praise. Let us see this clearly. If we would know ahead of time exactly all that would befall us, would we not say, no, thank you, I will not accept such a life? Sometimes we accept a certain task or job, but later when the implications and consequences become clear, we say, sorry, I quit. I did not know that it would be like this. 
Our Lord did not hesitate to accept his earthly ministry, and he never once pulled back after he had accepted it. He said, Take thou my life and mold it. I come, the book foretold it. Tis written in its roll. Thy will is my delight. Psalm 40, verse 3. He took upon himself the true human nature. He did this consciously, gladly, willingly, without reservation or hesitation, while knowing that this incarnation would lead to the crucifixion and the grave. Does this not reveal his immeasurable and incomprehensible love? Could we ever understand this or appreciate it fully on earth? Who will ever measure the depth, the width, and the height of the love of God in Christ? Think of it, the eternal Son of God, as the Catechism pointedly reminds us, who lived with the Father in full heavenly glory and wealth, takes upon himself, accepts a true human nature. He takes a nature which has become corrupt, marred, and scarred by the devastating results of sin, a nature which is full of weakness and sickness. He takes upon himself a constant death which ends indeed in the grave. He who was so rich in himself became so utterly poor for us, doing away with all his heavenly glory. He became utterly poor in his incarnation. He had no form or beauty, said Isaiah, that we should desire him. He had no recognition, no appreciation, no future, no life. He was maltreated, forced to wander, broken down, and finally crucified. Still, he took upon himself true human nature, fully accepting his work as Messiah from the start. He accepted our human nature. There is the miracle of our salvation. But let us understand it well. In taking upon himself our human nature, he takes it only as a second nature. In the process of incarnation, he does not lay down his divine nature. That would be impossible. The Catechism says, the eternal Son of God who is and remains true and eternal God. In other words, he becomes man but remains God. He becomes what he was not, human. But he remains what he was, divine. We must distinguish here between two natures. For God does not change into a man, nor does a man become God. The miracle is this. Christ, who is God, out of God, takes as second nature with the divine nature, our human nature, so that he becomes like his brothers in every respect. We have to understand then that through the incarnation, a new person become, comes into being, a unique person, such a person with two natures in one person who has, sorry, such a person with two natures in one person has never been seen before and will never be seen again. I admit that we can hardly imagine this. We only know of one nature, weak human flesh. As far as we are concerned, a person has only one nature. But with Christ, things are different. In one, in one person, there are two natures. For us, this is a matter of faith in the teaching of Scripture. It is indeed a matter of faith, for he is such a person 
for our salvation. As a person, he exactly fits God-revealed standards for the mediator. See also Lord's Day 6. He had to be a real man, and he is. He had to be true God, and he is. He can be, and may be, and fully is our mediator. Through him, as a historical and unique person, God realizes the miracle of our salvation. Human and divine natures in one person, it is incomprehensible, and therefore many people reject it. But it is our great comfort, for he is exactly the one we need as mediator. Christ himself even wanted to be such a mediator. He took upon himself true human flesh and blood in order to die as a man and through his death to dethrone him who had the power of death, the devil. As we read in the letter to the Hebrews, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make expiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2 verse 17. He had to be like his brethren, yet he was not forced to be like them. He did it with full dedication and true zeal. In this way, he became our mediator. He is a mediator who really knows life, who has intensely experienced and tasted life as a real human being. Like you and I, he had a body, he knew physical weakness and mental anguish. He could be dead tired. He knew hunger and thirst. He wept. He could even tremble with fear in the Garden of Gethsemane when he faced the powers of hell and death. He was so completely human that he called himself Son of Man. Yet he remained Son of God. With one word, he could still the greatest storms. He could multiply loaves and fishes to feed thousands. He could raise his loved ones from the dead. In royal strength, he approached the cross to emerge victorious from the grave. When they asked him, are you the son of God? He did not deny it at all, but affirmed it. He lived this life on earth with divine intensity. You know, sometimes people who have gone through the same things in life feel that they really understand each other. For example, those who have lost a child or have a handicapped child immediately feel what others go through when they experience the same. When we have had similar experiences, we sometimes say to each other, yes, I know all about it. But more than any other person, Christ can say, I know all about it. Yes, I know all about this world, about the body and spirit of man. I know all about your life. I know of pain and worry. I've seen the widow searching for a penny. I have seen the face of misery, sickness, and death. I am not some aloof stranger, but the son of man who knows even without being told. Christ understands our life. He has himself suffered and been tempted, says the letter to the Hebrews. Christ understands. Is this not comforting? There are those who say, when the minister or the elders and deacons come to visit them, no one can understand what I must go through. 
and that could quite well be true for office bearers, visitors, family, and personal friends, even if they want to, cannot really fully fathom the real need of the other. Does not Proverbs say, the heart knows its own trouble and no stranger shares in its joy? But Christ understands. He is the Son of Man and Son of God. He fathoms the real need of his children and knows the pain and yearning of our heart. In Hebrews 4, we even read that he is a heavenly high priest who can fully sympathize with us. If we then put the need of our lives before him, we will find an understanding heart and an open ear. Like his brothers in every respect, says the Catechism, but it adds, yet without sin. Christ does not know sin, and he has seen its devastating effects. He has taken our sins upon himself and felt the wrath of God over these sins. He knows sin, all right, but he has never done sin. He lived a life of perfect obedience and so saved us from the guilt and the power of sin. That is how rich the doctrine concerning Christ's two natures really is. Jesus Christ accepted his work through, through conception and birth, and in this way, he commenced his work on earth. We come to the second point. We still have to deal with the second question and answer of this Lord's Day. We saw how Christ accepts his work in and through conception and birth. But at the same time, we must also see that his conception and birth are themselves already a great beginning of this work. The Catechism asks an important question. Okay, says the Catechism, so he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But what benefit do you receive from this? He is true God and a true and righteous man, but what does this mean for you? The Catechism first answers by saying that he is our mediator, that is, our lawful and our rightful mediator who meets God's standards. We already looked at that aspect. The second part of the answer now demands our full attention. Christ begins his work, but the question is, where does he begin? Sometimes when we are assigned a certain task, we say, I don't know where to begin. There's so much to do. Is this also the case with our Lord? Where shall he begin his work of salvation? There are those who say that Christ's work of salvation begins and ends on the cross. <clears throat> that which really benefits us is then restricted to the cross. Before the cross, there is only preparation and no reconciliation. And this is indeed true, but only in the sense that on the cross, Christ completes his work of reconciliation. But the Catechism here shows us very clearly that Christ started his work of salvation at conception and birth. The cross gives us the climax of his work as mediator, but his work is total. It covers a whole life, and life begins with conception. 
Many may deny this nowadays. Abortionists like to say that life actually begins at birth, but the Bible makes clear that life starts with conception. And after conception, the life of the unborn is formed and shaped with a view to independent existence. Every human life begins with conception. We were all conceived. Psalm 51, Behold, I was in sinfulness. No, that is, that is true. But as we sang in Psalm 51, Behold, I was in sinfulness conceived. That life still within the womb is sinful. Because the parents are sinful, so is the child. We call this hereditary sin. Already in that small, invisible beginning, something is wrong with each one of us. There begins our life, but it is our sinful life. And our sinful conception means that we will be born in sin. Our beginning is sin, and we continue from sin to sin. Our life is a fountain of sin and misery. That is the terrible reality of original and hereditary sin. Sometimes I wonder if we really reckon sufficiently with this hereditary sin. Does the fact that we have been conceived and born in sin cause sorrow for us? Many people only feel sorrow, if they feel it at all, over a few specific sins which they've done, and often only because of the results of these sins. Do we daily realize that our very beginning was sinful and that from the beginning we are condemnable in the sight of God? Who realizes that God's wrath could justly come over every conception and birth? Every time a wife says to her husband, I'm pregnant, or every time a child is born, the Lord must say, also this life is sinful and it will anger me with much evil. For us, conception and birth mean that life goes on and that the generations continue. But the Lord says, Every conception and birth bring forth another sinner who is unfit for my service. Sometimes We sometimes try to make the fact that we are conceived and born in sin into an excuse in order to hide behind it. But God considers it inexcusable that what he made perfect and according to his own image has become unfit and unworthy. There is no excuse for this situation. So we start. Before birth, we are already inclined to all evil and unfit, for <clears throat> and unfit for service. Out of this life will come no good. Every baby has an insignia reading sinful, unholy, corrupt, unfit for service. That is why life is a constant death, as the form for baptism states. Do you begin to see why Christ had to... Do you begin to see why Christ had to start his work of redemption by his holy conception and birth? He did not start on the cross, but he started where we start, in the womb and in the crib. There he had to break the deadly chain of hereditary sin. He had to be conceived and born in holiness, and therefore conceived by the Holy Spirit. For only then could he be fit for the service of the Lord. In our conception, our depravity begins, 
In Christ's conception, the renewal of life begins. He starts where you start, already in the womb. He says, I come to do thy will, O God. Therefore, the Catechism says, with his innocence and perfect holiness, he covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and brought forth. Is my whole... Is my whole life corrupt from conception on? Well, his whole life is holy, also from conception on. Already in the womb of my mother, in the crib of my infancy, he stands in my place and so continues right up to the grave. He reconciles and restores my whole life. As a perfect mediator, he leaves no area of my life uncovered from conception to death. Without him, we'd have no right to life. Without him, Satan would stand at every cradle or crib and say, that child belongs to the realm of darkness. But now, no more. You may be conceived and born in Christ into a life of new service in God's kingdom. A full payment was made for your conception and birth in sin. Now Christ stands at the crib of each child of believing parents and says, this child is mine, and I will put my name on this child. There lie the riches of holy baptism. Christ says, from the very beginning of this child's life, I cover its sins, and I give it a new place. Therefore, every covenant child can grow in the joy of faith. So we confess at every baptism that although our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore subject to all sorts of misery, even to condemnation, yet they are sanctified in Christ. Here is a tremendous reality. When we look at our own lives and the lives of our children, we may say that despite all our sins and all falling into sin, we are, from conception on, sanctified in Christ. We are conceived and born in sin. This always remains a reality in our lives. But the sin is covered, washed away, so that our lives together with our children may begin anew. Life is again sanctified in Christ. It's in God's hands and in God's service. That is how Christ commences his work, where the misery starts, there the mediator begins. He renews our whole life from the womb to the grave. Blessed then is every family whose children are brought from the crib to the church, where it may be said, sanctified in Christ. Blessed are the children who are taught to live now as sanctified people. There is a new beginning, and it must lead every day to a new life. Amen.